Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. In our culture today, even within the church, there is a significant growing trend for professing followers of Jesus, people who would profess their love for Jesus Christ, are less and less interested in the things of God's Word. If it doesn't speak to my life issue, my situation, I don't really see what that has to do with me. I don't really see what good that is for me. I'm not really interested. If you drive, then you know one of the most dangerous places on the road are intersections. Drivers running a stoplight. Drivers not paying attention. Drivers hitting their brakes too late. If we're not careful, an intersection can be a place where we find ourselves in a wreck. Well, for several months now, we've been in a series entitled Crossroads, where your faith meets your culture. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you probably know that your faith is going to intersect in life with the culture around you. And when it does, if we're not paying attention, there is certainly potential for a spiritual wreck. So when God writes in this love letter that we call the Bible about various subjects that we sometimes may think don't necessarily apply to us in a specific situation, we receive them because it helps us to understand Him better. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Knowing how to respond in our culture as a follower of Christ is what this series is all about. The city of Corinth was located at a geographical crossroads of travel and trade. As a result, they embraced a wide variety of beliefs, traditions, and practices. Some of the influences of that culture had made its way into the church in Corinth. The Apostle Paul's letters to the church in Corinth were intended to help them and us understand how to navigate the complexities of living in a world where absolute truth was scarce. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, some of you might be tempted to think, well, this doesn't doesn't really apply to me. I don't really see what this has to do with me. Now, there is, let me be clear, there is application. As we dive into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians today, we find that there is one spiritual gift that is the most important for keeping us safe in the intersection of our faith and our culture. Now here's Pastor Clay. I want to start start this morning by telling you a story. There was a soldier who sent a letter. He wrote a letter and sent a letter to his girlfriend. And she received the letter. She was happy to receive the letter. Uh, She opened it with anticipation and she began to read it. And of course, uh, in the letter, the soldier wrote about his feelings for his girlfriend, how much he loved her. He he wrote about uh, his, uh, his plans and all that they would do Together, he, he wrote about his desire to, to provide for her and to protect her and, and to just, just share a life together and start a life together. When, when, uh, when he came, came back, he shared things like that, and she just ate that up. She loved hearing those things that he wrote about her. But in the letter, the soldier also wrote some things about himself. He wrote about his feelings on certain things. He, he, wrote his, uh, he wrote things about his beliefs. He, he wrote things about uh, what he saw and, and, and experienced and, and, and things like that. And as his girlfriend was reading that part of the letter, she began to think, well, what does that have to do with me? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really see how 
what he believes about this or what he thinks about that. I don't really see what that has to do with me. I really don't see how that's going to help my life. I want to hear what he has to say about me and about, about my life. Now, upon hearing a story like that, some of us in here might be tempted to question that girl's actual love for her soldier boyfriend. Don't you think? Because the truth is, when you receive a letter from, from someone, you don't necessarily receive a letter simply for information. You receive their letter for connection. You receive the letter because it tells you more about them than, than you knew before you knew about them. So reading about the things in their life that may not specifically pertain to you are, is, not a, is, not a, is not drudgery, it's... it's it's something you're excited about, something that you want to do. Because, I'll say it again, you don't read a love letter primarily for information. You, you read it for connection. Because it helps you to know that person better. You know what I mean? Now, I, I share that story because, because in our culture today, even within the church, there is a significant, uh, and, and I would fearfully say, growing trend for professing followers of Jesus, people who would profess their love for Jesus Christ, who more and more are, are less and less interested in the things of God's Word that they do not think specifically pertain to them. That if it doesn't, if it doesn't speak to my, my life issue, my situation, my, what I'm going through, well, I, I, don't, I don't really see what that has to do with me. I, I don't really see what good that is for me. I, I don't, I don't really, I'm not really interested in that. I'll say it again. You don't read a love letter primarily for information, but for connection. And so when God writes in this love letter that we call the Bible about various subjects that we sometimes may think don't necessarily apply to us in a specific situation... We receive them because it helps us to understand him better. That's why we do it. And I say all of that because as we're going into today, 1 Corinthians 14 in this series, Crossroads, making our way through the letters, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. We're in 1 Corinthians 14, which if you want to look ahead, we're not far from the end of 1 Corinthians. But as we come today to 1 Corinthians 14, we begin to discuss the subjects discussed in there. Some of you might be tempted to think, well, this doesn't, this doesn't really apply to me. I don't really see what this has to, to do with me. Now, there is, I mean, be clear, there is application. Okay, as we saw in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 13, and now moving into chapter 14, the, the uh, focus is on spiritual gifts. God-given gifts uh, that, that are given to individuals who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for the good of the body, for the health of the body of Christ, the, the local church and, and the church extended you could say the, the the church universal but but the church gathered and i said back in chapter 12 if you know christ as your savior god has given you according to what scripture teaches if you know jesus christ as your personal savior god has given you at least one possibly and probably more than one but god has given you at least one spiritual gift and so i will ask the question that i asked back in chapter 12, and that is this. What are you doing with the spiritual gift or gifts 
God has given you for the good of his church. Now, just let that sink in a minute. Just let that stay on the screen a minute. Just let that, just ponder that question. Read that, because if God has given you, if you know Christ your Savior, then Scripture clearly teaches that you have at least one spiritual gift. And when you looked at those in chapter 12, we're going to talk some more about it. You clearly have a spiritual gift. Clearly, spiritual gifts are given for the good of the body of Christ. And so, it's, it's quite proper for me to ask, what are you doing with the spiritual gift or gifts God has given you for the good of His church? How is the body uh, improved as a result of the spiritual gift or gifts that you have? And if, you, if, if you're thinking, wow, pastor, you, you trying to hurt me? No, I, I, I'm really not. I'm trying to help you. I really am. Because what is clear, or what should be clear, is that wherever you are in your walk, in your relationship with Christ, whatever, uh, and, and this, this idea of spiritual gifts and, and how those are being used for you, wherever you are in all of that, you need to understand that God is desiring more from you. Amen. And me, from all of us. God is desiring more. You know, when I, when we first started this, this, this church, when we first started Cross Culture Church, I was reading a lot of books from so-called church planting experts. And I'm sure they were. I don't mean that to sound derogatory. I'm sure that they were church planting experts. But I was reading a lot of books from church planting experts. And, and one of the things I kept coming across or read a number of times from a number of those authors in their books was that how when you're, when you're getting ready to plant a church, when you're planting a church, when you're tra- trying to draw people in, in the culture today, you have to understand that, that you, cannot, you cannot expect too much commitment out of people. You cannot call people uh, to, 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 to do too much or to commit too much. Today's generations uh, commit slowly, and they're not necessarily big on committing deeply, and so you will run people off if you call for too much commitment, too much ministry, too much service, too much uh, commitment to the body of Christ. You'll, you'll run people off. I, I, I will confess to you, confess to you as honest as I can be, I, I did not understand that statement then and I still do not understand that statement today. Not because they're necessarily wrong. I, I'll, I'll just tell you. Can I, is that okay? Can I, just, I say that a lot. Though. I'll just tell you. We've, we've, seen, we've seen some people leave who did not want accountability did not want to be called to, to ministry and to sacrifice and to service. So I'm not saying they're wrong. We have seen that in the culture today. We've seen people say, oh, y- y- y'all expect too much. Y'all want too much. Y'all, y'all are calling for too much. And, and we have seen, we, we have sent a few folks to some of the mega churches around here where they can just disappear into the, into the thousands and, and commit to as much Jesus as they want to commit to. And I'm not throwing mega churches under the bus, by the way. I, I, I'm not. I, I wish we were all running thousands. We ought to be. I'm not, I'm not throwing them under the bus. I, I'm just saying that I don't understand what they wrote in the book, in their books, because I keep, I keep reading this other book. Maybe you've read some of this. Matthew uh, chapter 10. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. These are some strong words. These are what, some of these are what are called the hard sayings of Jesus. He, he ran a bunch of people off when he said these, by the way. The text literally says, after this, that, that many left. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake, he'll find it. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, the theme verse of Cross Culture Church. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus? He must, you must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I consider myself as dead, essentially is what he's saying. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Come on, come on, we know this is true. These verses and hundreds more make it clear that God is calling all of us to be all in. That's just the truth. God's calling all of us to be all in. Maybe, maybe you have read Jesus' warning to the church at Laodicea. And it's really a warning to all churches that are just kind of, well, yeah. Revelation uh, chapter 3. To the angel, uh, meaning the messenger, the, the, the pastor, really is what it almost certainly is referring to. Uh, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. So what, 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 what I'm saying in all of this is that I, I'm, I'm really not trying to hurt or offend anyone. I'm just saying this is the expectation God has on our life. Now this is going to hopefully fall into place into all this in 1 Corinthians 14, but but this is why I ask the question, if you know Christ your Savior, what are you doing with the spiritual gift or gifts for the glory of God and, and the building up of His body? Okay? I say all of that because in 1 Corinthians 14, we're talking about spiritual gifts. We are essentially talking about two spiritual gifts. Prophecy and tongues. Now, prophecy and tongues were listed in 1 Corinthians 12. They were in that whole list. We gave a big list in 1 Corinthians 12. Prophecy and tongues are in there, but he comes back in chapter 14 to prophecy and tongues in depth. And he does so because, and I, I, hope, I think it will become clear when we get into the text, but he does so because one was the most important and one was the most problematic in Corinth. Now, before I read the text, and I'm going to read the whole blooming thing to you today. All 40 verses. Tyler's like, what? I'll read the whole thing, because you need, you need to hear the whole thing. But uh, before I do that, I need to define some terms that are going to come up. Now listen, I, I, I wish, I wish I had, there's so much in, in this chapter 14, and I love it. Y'all know I love it. There's so much in chapter 14, I wish I had time to just go verse by verse by verse and work through it. But I'm telling you, we would be here at least a month. Just getting through this one chapter. I'm going to have to take at least two weeks. But, but I need to define some terms. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate that so much. Uh, I need to define some terms before we read the text. It, this will come up in the text. And by the way, as I define these terms, as we get in the text, if you say, well, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe that. That's okay. It's all right. I'm just telling you what, and, and I hope I can build my case for why I believe the text says what it says. But let's, let's define some terms first. Let's start with this one. Prophecy. Prophecy. Now, we talked about this some in chapter 12, but prophecy can be defined this way, foretelling or proclaiming an event or truth before it occurs or before it is revealed. Malachi 
uh, foretelling the, the birthplace of the Messiah, the Savior, 700 years before it occurred would be an example of foretelling. David vividly describing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in Psalm 22 would be an example of foretelling. The Apostle John, writing about the, about the end times, the last days b- before the return of Christ, all that, in, in the Revelation, would be an example of foretelling. It can mean to proclaim an event or truth before it occurs or is revealed. But, if you were with us in chapter 12, or you just may know this anyway, the word prophecy can have another meaning. It also can mean this. Prophecy can also mean forth, forth-telling or proclaiming an event or truth after it occurs or is revealed. Um, Stephen preaching to the Jews in Acts chapter 7 about their, about their rebellion against God and their rejection of God's Son as the Savior would be an example of forth-telling. The event had already occurred, but, but he was forth-telling it. He was proclaiming it to them. The Apostle Paul, on all of his missionary journeys in, in, in the book of Acts, would be an example of forth-telling, proclaiming the gospel as he went. You or, or myself, sharing with someone, a neighbor, a co-worker, a, a, whoever it be, but you and me, sharing with someone what God has done in our lives would be an example of forth-telling. Okay? So prophecy can mean foretelling, telling the future, or it can mean forth-telling, proclaiming what has already been revealed. Now, it's, it's pretty easy to see how the one would require a special gift, right? To be able to tell the future, right? Sure, oh yeah, that, that would definitely take a, a special gift. But the truth is both definitions of prophecy are spiritual gifts. Now, as we will see uh, next week, anyone and everyone can prophesy, can foretell, but, uh, but Apparently, in the providence of God, certain people have been gifted with an ability to, to foretell or proclaim God's truth in a way that just is, makes it clear or helps people understand it or, or, or is used to, to change their lives and, and, and that sort of thing. Both are spiritual gifts, okay? For, for, foretelling or foretelling, either one can be prophecy. All right, here's the next word, or next one, we, definition. Biblical tongues. Biblical tongues. Speaking an actual language, but one not known to you through experience or education. In other words, you, you didn't grow up speaking uh, Czechoslovakian. You didn't grow up in a Czechoslovakian home. You haven't, you haven't ordered Rosetta Stone's Czechoslovakian module. You know nothing about Czechoslovakian, but suddenly uh, you have the ability in a certain situation with a bunch of Czechoslovakians to speak Czechoslovakian. I, I don't know why I'm picking on um, the Czechoslovakians, but I, you understand what I'm saying? That's, that's biblical tongues. The ability to speak a, a, an actual language, a known language, that you have not, it's not your experience or you haven't received it by education. That's the biblical example of tongues. Um, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19 would be the only biblical examples of, of biblical tongues occurring. Okay? Okay? <laughs> All right. We're getting into it. Here we go. Here's the next word we're going to define. Corinthian tongues. Corinthian tongues. Ecstatic utterances that were not an actual language. I've become convinced of this, of the text, and we'll, we'll get into that, especially next week when we really hit tongues. But in ecstatic utterances that were not 
an actual language. I call this Corinthian tongues because, because Corinth is the only place that this seems to initially happen. Now, it, it eventually happened other places, uh, but, but Corinth is the only place. There is no reference to this gift of tongues. There's no reference to it in any of Paul's other letters, and it does not appear to have been a problem in any of the other churches. Only in Corinth was this an issue. And as, as we'll read in a moment, it was an issue. Now, let me say a few things about this, these Corinthian tongues. Okay, y'all with me? This is, this is good stuff. Haven't got to the text yet, but, it, but it's, it's, we, get, we need to do this. This is important stuff. All right, let me, let me tell you a few things about it. First, Corinthian tongues were influenced by the oracles. There's, I, I, there's virtually no question about the fact that they were influenced by the oracles. Now, you may not have been here, but a few weeks ago I explained who or what the oracles were. Oracles uh, were, were a very prominent part of the ancient Greek world. The oracles were, um, were specially chosen uh, women, I think almost always uh, women as far as I know, who served in a temple setting to, to some god, usually in some way connected to Apollo, I think, but uh, served in a, a setting almost always in some type of drug-induced state or drug-induced trance, and they would speak, people would go and visit the oracles to receive information about their future. What's going to happen with this or that, or should we go to war, or, or should I go to McDonald's or Burger King, or should, I, don't, I don't know, something. They, they would go to, for, for, to find out things about their future, and, and these women, these oracles in this drug-induced state would, would begin to oftentimes speak in ecstatic, undiscernible uh, utterances or mumblings. And then, then a priest would then translate what the, what the oracle said was, and it was usually some type of vague uh, translation that, that wouldn't nail them down to anything concrete. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? Now, here's what you need to understand, because I, I know this sounds weird. Or, that, that whole stuff sounds weird. But you, you need to understand, it was a significant part of the Greek culture, the ancient Greek culture. The original oracle started in uh, Delphi. Delphi is in close proximity to Corinth. It's just across the very thin Gulf of Corinth. Uh, from, directly across from Corinth on the, in this very thin, it was close proximity. We know, and I said this a few weeks ago, we know that there were oracles operating uh, in the temple for Apollo directly in Corinth. It is a virtual certainty Based on what Paul describes, as I'm going to read it, it is a virtual certainty based on what Paul describes and based on the Corinthians' propensity to mix their faith with cultural influences, it is a virtual certainty that the oracles had influenced the church in Corinth. In other words, some of that had crept into the church in Corinth when this gift of tongues starts showing up, okay? All right, here, here's, the, here's the second thing. Influenced by the oracles, here's the second uh, thing you need to know about it. It was intended to show spiritual superiority. That's, that's been an issue for the Corinthians all through this letter. They were big on, look at me, look what I can do, look at how I'm better than you, all this kind of stuff. And maybe perhaps because it was the flashiest one, but the ability to speak in tongues, their, their understanding, or probably more properly their misunderstanding of tongues, uh, was seen as kind of a, uh, kind of a credential. Of their, of their spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul's going to have something to say about that. Uh, but, but their spiritual superiority. That's, uh, look, look at me. Spirit speaks through me. Kind of thing. Uh, 
By the way, in, in some churches, denominations, it's, it's still kind of seen as a credential for spiritual uh, maturity or, or, or superiority, but, but that's for another day. And uh, so it's intended to show spiritual. And then uh, third, it is induced by emotionalism. It's induced by emotion. Now, a few things I want to say about emotionalism. Y'all with me? Boy, I don't know if I'm going to get to the first point today, but I need to, got to say all this. It is induced by emotion. Now, here's what the first thing I want to say. Emotions are not a bad thing. Okay, don't, don't hear me say that emotions are a, a bad thing. I'm not saying that emotions are a bad thing, but I do want to say this. Your emotions must always be subject to your theology and not the other way around. You understand what I'm saying to you? Your emotions must always come under your theology and not the other way around. In other words, you cannot make decisions or have beliefs about something uh, that because you're, you're moved or you feel a certain way if it is in co- contradiction to a already stated or revealed uh, doctrinal or theological truth. Okay? You understand what I'm saying to you? Okay. Um, the second thing I would say is that uh, the people in, there in, in Greece and around the Mediterranean Sea and, and Asia Minor historically have been very emotional people. They're very susceptible to emotional movement. Again, I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing, but we know from Paul's uh, travels in the, in, throughout the book of Acts, you're reading the book of Acts, that the people in the, in the cities that he went into, into Asia Minor, around the Mediterranean Sea, were easily drawn into an emotional upheaval. They were rioting. They, they, would, they would start attacking people. They would start des- destroying uh, property. Uh, that, it wouldn't take much to stir them. You read that in several places. The crowd was stirred up, was stirred up. So, so you just need to understand that in that culture, emotionalism was, it was, it was a common part of the, of the culture. The third thing I would say about emotionalism is this, and I have Tyler bring it up on the screen so you can see it. Emotionalism is often confused with movement of the Spirit. Emotionalism is often confused with the movement of the Spirit. Uh, Now, you don't have to agree with me. I'm just telling you, I'm right. (laughs) It's going to come up in the text. You're going to see it. I think think you see this. But uh, it's often... Uh, emotionalism is often confused with the movement of the Spirit. And, and, not, and I don't just mean charismatic churches or Pentecostal churches that practice or whatever. Uh, let, let me give you an example. For instance, we might be in here singing this morning and the, and the worship, the music was fantastic and, and man, the praise team does a great job and everybody. And, and, and we might be singing a particular song and, and I just might be, man, just, just moved by that song, right? It's just the, 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 the reality, the truth of it, what it's saying, what my, my, what my Savior did for me. And others might be, might be moved by that same song. And, and after the service, we might say to one another, wow, I really felt the Spirit moving in the service today. When in fact, what we probably felt was an emotion based on the, the, the truth of the words, the beauty of the music, the reality of what God has done for me. It moves me emotionally and it's moved others emotionally. And so what I'm saying to you is that the movement of the Spirit is not necessarily uh, dictated by by our emotions in which way they go or flow or, or anything else. The Spirit very well may have moved in the, in the service, but not because I felt emotionally moved or didn't feel emotionally moved. By the way, nothing wrong with emotions in a service. Quite honestly, we can stand a little more of that in, in our services, and I'll have something to say about that next week when we get uh, into it as well. But the point is, the Spirit is not controlled by our emotions, should not be controlled by our emotions. Okay? 
All right. Uh, so, and I want to say this, you know, having said all of that, I want you to understand this. People in Corinth or people today that practice what I think is the Corinthian idea of tongues, I want you to understand this. They're, they're, not, they're not being fake. Certainly, I think most of them. They're, they're, not, they're not putting on. They're not putting on a show. But they may be confused about what they're emotionally feeling versus whether the Spirit of God is actually moving. By the way, can I just say this? Historically, when the Spirit of God moves, it's usually not to bring a good feeling. When the Spirit of God moves, it usually brings a sense of awe and reverence and conviction and repentance when the Spirit of God moves on a, on a body of believers. I'm just, I'm just saying, historically, that's what you see almost every single time. All right, real quickly. Real quickly, I can at least read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Maybe you got a copy of God's Word on your phone or hard copy. It'll also be on the screen. Listen. Listen to what he says now. He's coming back to two of the spiritual gifts that he had mentioned in the list earlier, but deals with them quite extensively. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. We'll break that down and look at what that means. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what, what will I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching. Yet, even lifeless things, either a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. In other words, you're you're talking to nobody. There are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning, no actual language. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. And so also you. Since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. You notice how many times he said that now? Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise... If you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind 
so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophecy is for a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted or unbelievers enter, if they, if they come in, will they not say you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done, here it comes again, for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. By the way, I I think that's intended to keep us preachers uh, in check who tend to be long-winded. I I think that's, hey, if somebody else got something to say, shut up. Something else to say from God. I should say that. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Sure hope you all can come back next week. (laughs) Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. That's a lot. Let me just just share this with you and next week we'll dive into it. I realize that was a big introduction, but we needed to define those terms. You needed to understand as we prepare to read it and as we prepare to break down. But I will start with this uh, principle this morning. I just want to say this. Prophecy is the priority. I I think virtually anyone hearing that text can clearly see that prophecy is the priority. And I'll just say this and we'll get ready to close. But the fact that Paul is emphasizing that so strongly to the church in Corinth indicates that that was the problem in Corinth that something else had become the priority in Corinth. 
And Paul is always bringing them back, always bringing them back, always bringing them back to prophecy. Remember, prophecy can be to foretell or it can be to foretell. And there are, there are examples of both of those uh, showing up in both, obviously both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But clearly, the foretelling aspect of prophecy is the much rarer occurrence and the foretelling of prophecy is the one that, that is constant going on and on throughout Scripture, throughout the New Testament, and throughout even our lives today. It is, it is to foretell or proclaim. And Paul says that when the church is gathered, prophecy, the proclamation of God's message to mankind, that should always be the priority. Prophecy, the proclamation of God's truth, and as we heard today, the Apostle Paul was clear that it was far more important than the spiritual gift that the Corinthians had chosen to focus on. Building up the body of Christ through edification, exhortation, and consolation that comes from God's truth is the most important thing that we can be a part of. God's truth helps to guide us through all the falseness that this world has to offer. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God. Cross culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.